You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 166, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Returning to the show is today's expert, which is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He's also an economist and epidemiologist. He's also one of three co-authors for the Great Barrington Declaration, which came out in late 2020, along with Harvard biostatistician Dr. Martin Kaldroff and world-renowned epidemiologist Sunitra Gupta from Oxford University. The Great Barrington Declaration essentially stated that the focus should be towards the elderly and not towards the young and healthy population as this respiratory virus was of minimal risk to that population. However, a significant risk to those who are elderly or immunocompromised or sick or both. Because of the position they three took, they were roundly criticized, mocked, and referred to as fringe epidemiologists by the lay press, also by many government officials, including Dr. Tony Fauci and Collins from the NIH. I think you really enjoy the conversation where we get into the details of what exactly happened with Collins and Fauci, and we'll again address the idea of where we are with COVID, how we're going to reassess what the damage was or success was of the lockdowns. I'd like to remind you, if you have not yet subscribed to the show, it is free. Just select subscribe and make sure you download every episode. You can also visit the website at The Paradox, and that's spelled the same way as the show, P-R-A-D-O-C-S. Theparadox.com, you can go there and sign up for email notifications for when new episodes drop. You can always go to the YouTube page and also Facebook page. Just search for The Paradox. You can find them there and join those groups and subscribe as well. Show notes, of course, will be at theparadox.com slash 166. There you can get links to the other episodes we have discussed with Dr. Bhattacharya and things on COVID and his institute where he talks about trying to restore some sanity and intellectual discussion and rigor into academia. But without further ado, The Way to Build False Scientific Consensus with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Enjoy. Welcome back to The Paradox. I'm here with Jay Bhattacharya. He's back on episode 134, which actually back in June of 20, June 24th of 2021. It, it doesn't, like I was saying before, it, it doesn't feel like it's been that long, but COVID really disports your reality of, of time. The space-time continuum is all messed up with, with the epidemic. Yeah, it's good to be back, Eric. I, I can't believe it's been almost a year. Yeah, so, well, a few things have changed um, since we last spoke. Uh, fortunately, the the pandemic has ended. People have become, they have returned to rationality. Science is, no, <laughs> is now engaged in honest discussions and uh, discourse, right? Academia has totally flipped on its head. Yeah, sadly, none of those things have happened, right? <laughs> That's the joke, right? So, so, I mean, one of the things we talked about last episode was the fact that we worry about science and just the discourse and, and I guess talk about what your feeling has been since we last just spoke last a year ago. 
So since we spoke last, uh, there's been a few developments about uh, how government bureaucrats, prominent people like Tony Fauci, handled dissent when he when he was faced with it. All right. So just to just to give your listeners a timeline, um, in October of 2020. Sunetra Gupta, Martin Kulwafer, and I wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, that was the uh, that was a proposal to essentially uh, for for younger people to open up society because the lockdowns were harming them more than COVID was, um, and uh, you know schools especially. Uh, whereas for older people to to adopt more uh, more measures of, of focus protection for the elderly because COVID was a deadly disease is a deadly disease for the elderly, um, and uh, so we we wrote this hoping to engage the scientific community in a discussion about how to do focus protection and also to bring attention to the, the, the problems of, of the, the, the collateral damage caused by lockdowns. Um, instead, Eric, what we were met with was this absolute wall of hostility from, the, from, the, from the, the, uh, both the press and also the mainstream scientific establishment. Uh, I started getting reporters asking me why I wanted to let the virus rip, people accusing me of being a eugenicist, even though I want to protect the vulnerable, vulnerable old, which is a strange thing for a eugenicist to want to do, I guess. Um, uh, anyways, it was, it, was, it, was the, it was the weirdest thing. Um, and you know, just hostile attacks from both inside the university and outside. Um, and I was, I was just, I was, I was blown away. I mean I, I mean, I knew it would be controversial, but I didn't expect it to, to have this sort of, uh, this sort of like uh, crazed, uh, you know, expulsion from the from from polite society. Um, what happened uh, since is that I, I, I there were a series of of, of, of people who uh, who made FOIA requests. FOIA is a Freedom of Information Act request to the federal government, trying to figure out what happened. Like what were what were Tony Fauci and Francis Collins, who's the head of the NIH, saying around the time when they saw the Great Barrington Declaration. So it turns out there was an email from Francis Collins to Tony Fauci four days after we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, for literally four days. In it, he wrote that there were three French epidemiologists, me, Sunetra Gupta, who's probably the world's best epidemiologist at, in, in, uh, at Oxford University, and Martin Kuldorf, who's then a biostatistician at Harvard University, an epidemiologist, designed the vaccine safety surveillance systems. Um, we put a big part in that in, um, in, for the FDA. Uh, he called us fringe epidemiologists, and I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna put it on my on my like uh, you know business card someday. <laughs> Your Twitter bio, right? Fringe epidemiologist. <laughs> I think you should put that on there. Um, uh, anyways, I I uh, um, he also called for a devastating published takedown of the premises. Four days. He didn't didn't contact me. He didn't want to talk with me. He just called, wrote, asked, asked, and Tony Fauci responded with a link to a Wired magazine article that was published around that time completely misunderstanding the proposal. Um, the, the, uh, what, what I think has ha what happened was that they viewed, Tony Fauci and Francis Collins viewed the Great Barrington Declaration as a threat to the idea that there was a consensus in favor of lockdown, a scientific consensus in favor of lockdown. When you have uh, three people from places like Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford saying, look, um, the, the lockdowns are a grave mistake. I mean, you kind of need to take it seriously. But they, but they didn't take that seriously. Instead, they sought to destroy us, destroy the idea, put us put us on the fringe, um, and they used the media, their links to the media and to big tech to set to try to attempt to censor us, deplatform us, um, and it was it was a, it was a 
uh, it, was, it was something else to go through. So, I mean, it was, it was a, you know, a, a very stressful time for me. Um, but, I, but I think the key thing is, is to understand why it matters for policy more broadly than, than, than for me is that um, you, you cannot have government scientists, government, essentially government bureaucrats, falsely claiming a scientific consensus that does not exist. Tens of thousands of scientists signed the Great Barrington Declaration. You know, tens of thousands of doctors signed the Great Barrington Declaration. Almost a million people have signed it. Um, it's it's very far from a, the lockdowns were then and now very far from a consensus, and it was a false. Uh, it was an attempt to create this false sense of consensus to, to use the enormous power they have over the minds of 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 the of, of scientists and also the, the media and the big tech in order to to create this this illusion of consensus. Yeah, it's it was pretty stunning because I think you know, growing up, I grew up in the '90s, and so there was definitely a political correctness, I guess you'd say, wave or on campus. And it was sort of not joked about, but it was kind of kind of silly. But when you go to campus, there were all kinds of different speakers who come. I was at the University of Michigan, very liberal campus, and we had all kinds of people spouting crazy things. And and you know there and there were occasionally there were shout downs, but for the most part there was a there was engagement there's at least a discussion and yeah maybe you think someone's a kook but you just you know you'd at least express it to them and tell them they're a kook as opposed to have third parties you know do this sort of behind the scenes and and squelch this debate because i think you know we talked about before i i think the academic institutions is really where the biggest problem is in some respects because that is where you expect to have this debate you expect to have a a discussion for a couple hours between 10 prominent epidemiologists or whomever you know and have and sort of hash these things out and at least have an idea of what the consensus is. Because, I mean, likely you don't ever approach true consensus, but you may find that you may find things that are inside or outside the bounds, and you at least have an opportunity for other academics to look at these discussions, listen to them, and say, hmm, you know, draw their own conclusions based on what they know, right? But that that seems like that's how the academy, so to speak, used to, used to work. And I, my impression is this is new. Like, I don't think this happened before COVID. Like when AIDS was, we were talking about AIDS, we were talking about, I mean, this is a long time ago, but even other discussions, it doesn't seem like this was a sort of the route to, to, to approach consensus with any sort of thing. Maybe it happens in professional societies like cardiologists or so. I, I don't know. I mean, is that accurate? Because it just feels like this is a, just a totally, it's almost like the rules were changed and no one really knew about it, except the people who were orchestrating this sort of behind the scenes, like you mentioned Fauci and Collins. I mean, I think... Um... So let me talk a little bit about the about the about like in particular why this is such a conflict of interest. Like what they did, um, you know, Fauci and Collins they sit on forty five billion dollars of budget right. that goes to scientists every well, bi- biomedical scientists all across the, the country, actually all across the world. That's, but it's not just the money. In order to advance in academic medicine, you really do need an NIH grant. An NIH grant is a marker itself of a success, and many academic institutions require a big NIH grant in order to get tenure. So it's it's not just that you're that you're, you can't do your research because you can't get the money. It's your entire like social standing within science itself depends on NIH research money. And so when the head of the NIH engages in behavior like this, he's sending a signal to the world at large. Tony Fauci is sending a signal to the, the scientists in particular that if they step out of line, they're going to be they're, they, they, you know, they're just boy, that's a nice career you have there. It'd be, it'd be terrible <laughs> if something were to happen to it. Um, uh, so it's it's a deep conflict of interest. I, and you asked, is this new? I'm not sure it's new, actually, Eric. 
because uh, okay during covid we i think i've seen this happen in th- th- at least three different areas where tony fauci used his power and leverage to deem academic discussion about COVID, various aspects of code policy out of out of bounds it, for, i think the, the most prominent of this is actually not even us it's the dis- discussion over the lab origins of the, of the of the virus like is it lab origin is it natural origin um, in uh, in again in FOIA emails, there were a whole series of these uh, where it, it from, from like February 2020, uh, where Tony Fauci organized a, a a group of of virologists. He asked a group of virologists, that basically in his inner circle, to to come together. In a, like a, it looks to me like a, a small cabal. They came in. He they asked they they several of them before the before the meetings that they, they that Tony Fauci arranged. Uh, basically said that it's a 50-50 shot. It could be either lab leak or natural origins. They're not sure. They came out of that meeting all believing, all saying that they believed it was it was a conspiracy theory to say it was a lab leak. Yeah. And then they wrote a letter that the, the, the Lancet published essentially calling the lab leak a conspiracy. So for a full year, prominent scientists who thought it was a lab leak. Now, I don't, I'm not qualified to tell I, i'm not a bio you know, molecular biologist but it looks to i mean what it can say is that this looks like a cover-up it, i mean you had a group of people who used their power to marginalize people who thought it was a lab leak and frankly it just looks really suspicious to me um they, they did that with then they did that again with the lockdowns as we just discussed and they also did that with the possibility of early treatment so they, they marginalized anyone who thought that that that, that early treatment with, with with repurposed drugs was even possible. Um, ironically, they they act, uh, Tony Fauci's NIAID actually is running a trial on on ivermectin and fluvoxamine that are due to be done in March 2023. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, it's it's but like and you know and the and people that you know like doctors someone like Peter McCullough, who has a long career in, 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 uh, in, in, uh, in medicine, saying that the early, these early treatments are possible, that we should evaluate them quickly. I mean, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's just, just like, you know, he may be right or may be wrong, he, but he belongs in the conversation, he doesn't belong in the fringe. Um, so I think uh, I've seen this at least three times with, in, in the context of COVID. Um, and this has a long assorted history. Like, so if you go back to the Soviet Union, there was a, there was a scientist named uh, uh, Lysenko, Lysenko was a was a, 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 a geneticist, but he didn't believe in Mendelian genetics. Stalin loved him because he thought because Lysenko promised uh, crop yields that were going to be massive. All you have to do is expose the crops to some you know, harsh conditions. They 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 evolve in the context you know in in one one generation and then they pass on what they learn to their their offspring. Um, this probably killed I don't know how many how many people from starvation in the Soviet Union. Um, all of the Mendelian geneticists were purged one by one by Lysenko. And, and to you know, many, I mean, many, I mean, seriously, many died. I mean, this is not uh, this is not something to play around with. Uh, science needs to have free discussion. It needs to be. You cannot have government bureaucrats with a tremendous power over the minds and careers of scientists playing the kind of role that, that Tony Fauci and uh, and uh, Francis Collins played. Yeah, I think it's easy to 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 point out that Fauci has been in office, I guess his office, since nineteen eighty four in heading the NIAID. That's almost forty years. That's a I mean, that's a long time, obviously. And so he has built up credentials, he's built up contacts within the media, tech industry, everywhere everywhere within government. 
and and he uses those. I mean, I, there's no question. I mean, he is he is a politician, and I think it's easy for us to say, well, he's a scientist, etc. And yes, he is those things, but he's absolutely politi- a politician because you cannot survive in government that long, both Democratic and Republican administrations, you know, forty last forty years, and not be a not be a political animal in many respects, right? So you have to be able to play. And so you turn those, you you sort of turn in your chips when you need them. And I think this is certainly an opportunity. And maybe to your point that the the industry has been like this. It's just we don't see it because it's not it's not in the public. No one ever really knows what's going on in research. People who are contrarians a little bit in climate science have definitely made these assertions that there's, you know, if you're not towing the, the party line, whatever that might be, that you're going to feel that in, in funding through NAH or in that case, it would be the, um, uh, is it at national NAOSS? I think the national atmospheric oceanic services. No, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I think in some ways maybe you see the same phenomena, and maybe it's just that we again we just didn't it was never public, but now it has been brought to the forefront. And to your point, of course, it may not have been a lab leak; it might have been natural origins. It might early treatment might not work at all. It might be a scam, right? It might just be like giving lemonade to people. All these things are possible, but the counterfactuals are entirely possible as well, right? And that's why we run studies, and that's why we debate this in studies. We have mechanisms that we think are either reasonable or unreasonable we and we sort of hash those out and then obviously they have to face reality at some point right and i guess to that point when it comes to lockdowns um mask mandates and those sort of measures that that the public feels i mean the public doesn't really feel ivermectin i mean they do sort of but not not really how are we going to really study that because i i feel like now with this ukrainian war people have sort of forgotten about the pandemic unless you live in a few certain areas in the country like i'm in I'm in middle America right now, and I mean, I saw a mask or a couple, but for the most part, strangely, the only place I saw them was at the science museum, but I haven't really seen them anywhere. And, uh, but I read these reports from New York and from California. It's almost like it's, it seems like a totally different world where kids are still wearing masks, to toddlers. And I, I guess there has to be at some point a consensus on how things worked. And we have to arrive at that relatively soon because. I just saw a report came in through from a suburban city and our school district in Kansas City, middle America. They've reinstituted mask mandates in their schools for not COVID, but for like other things. I mean, it's like this belief that masks are going to have uh, effect on it, on respiratory viruses and some, right? I mean, so I think at some point we have to, we do have to re- arrive in a, a proper consensus on whether these things worked or didn't so we can develop policy when the next thing comes. Yeah. I mean, I think... Um... That absolutely has to happen. There needs to be. There does absolutely need to be a uh, a, a careful counting of what uh, what what worked and didn't work, what was dam- damaging, what wasn't wasn't damaging. I mean, we basically owe it to the dead, right? The the, the uh, and I don't just mean dead of COVID. We the the, the lockdowns, I believe, led to the the uh, starvations of millions of people. The, de- the economic devastation on a scale that that's, that you know you only see basically during war. Um, you, you, the lockdowns have led to uh, a mass drive in, in, toward inequality. Uh, you know, schools closed, and it's who, who suffered. It's poor kids that suffered. It's poor kids that'll pay those costs throughout throughout their entire lives because uh, you just don't make up two years of missed school just by, with a snap of a finger. Um, the, the consequences are so grave for the lockdown. I don't see how uh, it was. It's possible to actually just move on without doing an assessment. Um, and a, a very careful one in arriving at some sort of consensus, like you said. Uh, if that consensus, if that assessment is done and led by uh, the people who impose the lockdowns, 
and the public sees that, then there will be no trust in that in that in that assessment. You know, like there's there's some attempt by to put together a COVID commission uh, led by essentially lockdown proponents. Um, you know, like uh, the, the like the Rockefeller Foundation, the uh, the uh, 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 some some big foundations actually put together an effort uh, led by this guy named Phil Zelika, who was the head of the 9/11 commission. He actually contacted me. Um, like almost a year and some ago. So we wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, me and Martin Kuldorf arguing that, look, you need to have, you do need to have a commission, um, but the commission needs to be uh, not led by the people who le- who actually implemented, got their way with the policy. Those are the people that need to be assessed. Um, and it needs to include people, including people like me who are critics um, and lots of other people. It should be it should be a very broad based commission, but it absolutely needs to be something that's open, transparent, and uh, and and so that the American people, the world world people, can see that uh, that that we've looked at everything. Because um, you can't have a cover up on something of this scale. You really cannot. Uh, the 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 consequences of this have been too grave. Yeah, I well, I also feel like much like the O.J. Simpson trial, you have to find jurors who are non biased. And it's pretty impossible at this point. It's been so politicized, the lockdowns, mandates, that to find people who are of no opinion, I guess you'd say, the people who've been on the moon, maybe in Antarctica, I'm not quite sure where they'd have to be, where they would not have formed an opinion at this point. And so it's going to be really hard to get a get a consensus. And and I feel like it becomes very tribal. Like if as soon as you say one way, you say it's one thing is true and not true, you've thrown your people maybe or the other guy's people under the bus. And so it... it I don't know how you make that so it works out so that you can come to an honest opinion. I, maybe that's, maybe I'm wrong, but I, f- I find it's going to be very challenging to find a framework that is going to, it's going to be satisfactory to both sides, let's say, because it, again, everyone's sort of invested so much in this. I don't know how much time has, maybe just time has to pass. I, I don't understand. I don't know the answer. It may take some time, but I, you know what I, what I'm seeing, and maybe I don't know if you're seeing the same thing, Eric, is a lot of people who were sort of, well, you know, in favor of these restrictions, in part, in part because they were scared, that, that that fear is dissipating, and many of them have, are starting to open their minds um, to whether what it was actually right or not. I mean, a lot of them are fair-minded people. It, it, you can understand during 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 the pandemic why they might have thought one way just because they they were. I mean, we were subject to like deep propaganda about the the deadly how deadly the virus act truly you know it's, it's deadly for old people much less deadly for young for young people a whole range of the, like the efficacy of lockdown a whole a whole whole range of like sort of things that were not true were put forward as mainstream views um and uh it was like this idea that if you if you uh, uh question that uh, if you just measure the the uh, the deadliness of the virus like as i did with the with the santa clara study uh, the antibody study in the early days of the pandemic, that somehow that we were minimizing the virus. In fact, all we're doing is actually trying to measure exactly how deadly it is. Um, it, it's one of these things where like, I think as people um, uh, move away from that, as the as the propaganda machine sort of turns to something else, um, the the people, I think people's minds will open and have, and I think I've seen that a lot of people are, uh, are, are coming around to the view that maybe something went wrong. Um, I don't know that it'll be possible to get a completely unbiased. I mean, I don't, you're right, Eric. I don't think any such thing, such, such, such a person exists. Um, at least not one of those like I would want judging. Not, right, exactly. Not when you want. But uh, but I think uh, I do think that uh, that for many, the, especially those who were just in the middle, 
um, their minds are opening. Uh, the, the, the key thing is you can't have the people who are the architects of the lockdown be in charge of the evaluation of the lockdowns. Right. The architects and enforcers of the lockdowns are the ones that need to be on the dock for, for assessing whether they, they, the, their, their policies were right. And if they were, if they weren't right, then we need a, a, a historical repudiation of those policies. I, I frankly, Eric would like to see lockdown become a dirty word. I want, I want whenever people think of lockdown to recoil in horror at the thought because of what, because uh, the destruction that, that the, those policies have brought. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the other half of that equation. I think one is to, to, did it actually control, did it actually accomplish what they had hoped that it stopped the spread or minimized disease? And the second part of course is the other, the secondary bit outcomes, right? And and that's what I think what was totally ignored during the debate, whether we should even have these economic lockdowns, mandates, et cetera. And you're an economist, so that's what you kind of do as a job, right? Like the the unseen, right? You, the, what are the unseen consequences of whatever it is that we're doing? We have to measure those in some way and 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 keep track of that because there's a cost to everything. That nothing is without cost, whether it's you know your time or inconvenience at minimum, right? Or or to your point to your point earlier, educational costs from poor and uh, poor children or and usually ones who have of color, right? I mean they, these are these are potentially really devastating long act long lasting effects much more than long covid i think it's summers and more prevalent yeah i think um uh the the uh the question of whether it was effective uh, I and mean, we're going to be debating that in the, in the scientific literature for a while i've seen a whole range of studies uh the the um there's, there's sort of two categories of studies i've seen one which takes those models ser- very very seriously and those models these uh these forecasting models, these uh, they're, they're, they're like agent-based models, what they do is they essentially have built into them the efficacy of a lockdown. In those models, if you take the little sims that populate them, keep them apart, they won't spread the disease each other, the disease doesn't stop, stop spreading, you just push the disease off to later or whatever. And then you compare that against the real world and say, oh, look, we uh, we had fewer fewer cases than predicted by the model, therefore the lockdown worked. Right. Um, that's one class of papers. There's another class of papers that that like trying to look at real world examples of places the lockdown versus didn't. And there you just get into big arguments over yeah. is the because you don't you we didn't run a randomized study. There's no randomization of lockdown. There's just correlations. Right. Well, it's <laughs> and, I mean the data is really not very. It's not. Um, it, you can't you can't compare data from say Belgium with Morocco or Sweden with you know Liechtenstein, right? I mean, they're how they how they test and how they determine all those things is and record them. And we look in the United States, we have the same problem from state to state. We have disparity in sort of how people are, are did you die with COVID? Did you die of COVID? With, you know, there's, it's probably, it's kind of foggy sometimes whether someone died because of COVID is, there's a secondary infection, whatever. I mean, you can see how hard it is to compare these things. You can only kind of compare globally. Like you, you can excess deaths and things like that. But of course, one could argue there are other reasons for excess deaths because of the lockdowns, because of social isolation, suicide, drug use, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so the, the, those are difficult comparisons, but you know, the funny thing is most of those papers that do real world comparisons, they find it's really hard to find a, a, a strong right. correlation um, between lockdowns and good COVID outcomes. You just, it just seems uncorrelated. Like, and and uh, now the question is why that would be. And it's really important that like people, have intuitive sense that lockdowns ought to work. If I'm staying away from you, I'm not going to spread the disease to you, right? Right. Why didn't they work then? And it's because society doesn't work like that. But in the way society works is is that we're it's it's we have a very unequal society. Maybe only thirty percent of 
people had jobs in the US where they could stay at home and not lose their jobs. The rest of the people basically had to work. Um, and uh, and that's even more true outside the U.S., right? So so in July of 2020, there was a, I think July or August 2020, there was a there was a, a, a zero prevalence survey done in Mumbai, in India, and in the slums of Mumbai, there was a 70% prevalence of the disease. In the rest of Mumbai, it was 20%. <laughs> the, the lockdowns are a luxury of the rich. The, the, the ability to stay apart from each other, to stay stay sheltered is a luxury of a, only a certain class of people. And they're not the majority of people in society. When you tell people to stay apart, um, it's very easy for us with jobs that that, don't, that allow us to not lose them. If we don't, if we do that to say that, oh, well, why, why don't, why doesn't everyone do what I'm doing? I'm, I'm just being sensible. But for most people, they, they don't live in a, in a in their, their living circumstances are not such that, that that's a fe- reasonable, feasible thing to do. So you say a lockdown is going to work, but it won't work because the living circumstances of the vast majority of humans are not anywhere near uh, able to, 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 to comply with such a, such a inhumane order. Um, so I think that's why the lockdowns have failed to protect COVID spread. COVID is going to spread. And of course, there's, there's animal reservoirs. There's all kinds of reasons why the lockdowns wouldn't, were never going to get us to zero COVID. Yeah. I mean, zero COVID was pretty clear, I think, by April of 2020, that that was that was an impossibility when it's already all over the world. I mean, once it's all over, it's a fantasy to think that you can unless you think a vaccine is going to the first respiratory vaccine is going to be 100 percent effective at preventing transmission. I mean, I think there was that that was fantasy. And I think that was pretty clear. Yeah. I, and to your point about people changing their viewpoint, I you know, I definitely see clinicians. It has changed in sort of how they approach mask wearing is a good example. There were people who were zealots for masking that I saw in medicine who were, you know, convinced that this is the, the route. And and people who I think are pretty sensible people, but they were convinced that, and again, on some level, like you said, just like it's intuitively, you say, well, if you stay away from people, you can't spread a disease. If you wear a mask, it may not provide 100% protection, but it's going to provide some protection. You know, if I eat onions for breakfast and or for lunch and I'm wearing a mask, people don't notice my onion breath as much. So it must, it must have some effect, right? I mean, I think into it, and probably there is some very marginal benefit to these potentially, right? But it became pretty clear, I think, I've seen definitely a turn of the tide the last few months. Again, I'm in the Midwest, so not in the the Northeast or the West Coast, which may be different. But where I am, people are definitely much more blasé or laissez-faire, maybe is a better word for it, about mask wearing. You know, that, yes, we are compelled to by the CDC now with, or the CMS, I think, with uh, within hospitals, healthcare settings. But no one really, I think, believes for the most part it's going to really do much. You know, we see people wearing masks and they've got N95s on and they have a full beard. You're like, well, clearly that's, I mean, that's, that's not great. I see people in the store with them and I'm like, I, I want to tell them that it's not effective, not because I'm being to be mean, but just like, you know, if you really want the protection, you got to shave your beard. I mean, you can't obviously get a seal if you have hairs there and we laugh about it, but it's like, people don't re- realize that they just think it's almost like this mythical sort of protection. But I, I want to kind of, honest, like, I don't, I don't. I can't, I mean, I don't wear a mask with a seal when I'm forced to wear a mask. I just, it's just really uncomfortable. And frankly, like, I, I think that's, that's the vast, vast majority of people. Like, yeah. and, and, you know, and the, and the virus is aerosolized. Once we understood the virus is aerosolized, aerosols, you know, it's just, they stay in the air for a very long time. Your yeah, glasses right. get fogged up with them when you're wearing a mask. That's those, that, that fog has virus particles in it. If you're, if you're sick um, and it's sitting there. What was the end of what was the end game with the mask? I just don't understand why we created this like enormous diversion of social energy 
to something that really had very little good evidence in favor of it. I think like many things that, you know, there's the saying, don't just stand there, do something. And I think early on there was nothing to do, right? I mean, you could say, well, stay away from people, but that was not totally practical. It was not at all practical, in fact, because, you know, we need to eat. You can't go without eating for more than a couple of days if you really, you know, if you really, so you have to go out and interact with people. And so you have to have, so it was a way of giving people something to do and to see that, show that you were doing something and that you're being effective and you're a politician. You can never prove the counterfactual that it didn't work, right? I mean, because it's such an infectious disease. And then it became more, right? Then it became a talisman. It sort of became a, a symbol of just like wearing a MAGA hat, wearing a mask was suddenly this similar to sort of sorting the others and then yourself. And I think that's sort of what has, I think that's kind of what, how it sort of evolved to what it is today, where it's, it's more than just a infection protection. It, it's a value judgment. Yeah. Like they, they uh, essentially like this, this messaging, my mask protects you, your mask protects me as opposed to it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, my mask doesn't protect me, it protects you somehow. <laughs> um, uh, it weaponized empathy, right? So I, care about you and so therefore i must wear a mask if i don't wear a mask it's a fact i don't care about you it's right. a dangerous message sure put and it makes you and it's a value judgment that makes you that you way saying you're better than them right i mean yeah. that, that you're a bad person and it's right it's a good person bad person right that's sort of a very simple way of, of setting apart with so many things in COVID, right? So if you got COVID, the first thing anyone asks you is, well, why weren't you careful? Like, wh where'd you get it from? Who gave How'd it? How'd you get it? Yeah. How'd you get it? I mean, as if like, it's a respiratory virus. It, it just, it, I lived I before I, I got it. Uh, I, I just, uh, and there was like, there's that. Then there was like the, uh, there was like this distinction of clean, unclean and so many things. So like uh, mask, unmasked, uh, are you being careful, not being careful? Are you vaccinated, not vaccinated, boosted, not boosted? I mean, all of these are essentially markers. Uh, this, 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 like we, it, it hi, we hijacked our, our innate fear of infectious disease, which like, if, if you go back to primitive societies, there's like this big distinction between clean and unclean. And yes. in Western societies, we had like, a, we essentially, because we had made such progress against so many infectious diseases, it didn't really play a, a it wasn't in the forefront of our minds that, that, that there were infectious diseases that could, that could hurt us. Um, and so when this disease came and all of a sudden it was put in our face that, that infectious diseases are still out there, we're still human. Um, people just, people, people's fear centers, their, you know, their, their, their sort of lizard brains took over. Um, and this clean and unclean distinction came back in, in, in screaming, and it's it's led to the, such so much of the social dissolution I've seen in the last few last two years. Yeah, I think so. Well, my wife's a pediatrician, and one thing that she noticed, especially the big RSV spike that happened last summer after we had spoken, RSV was always around. It was always a danger to very small children, you know, infants and to one two year olds. And it was much, much more dangerous than really most infectious diseases for the most part that are certainly common. And parents just never worry about it. I mean, you would, they would keep their kids from their grandparents. Maybe if someone's sick, the first few, I mean, that was kind of common, right? If someone's sick, they, you don't have them come hang out with your baby, right? And the people are always, and you're totally be protective, mainly for RSV, I think for the most part, for other colds. But uh, it wasn't until COVID happened and then RSV happens and then kids get really sick. I mean, they're a lot of kids went to the hospital because it was a really particularly bad RSV season. And my wife had for once the first time parents actually paid attention to her when she was talking about RSV because they, before they'd never really paid attention to infectious disease. To your point, we kind of thought, Oh, we'd beaten it. Infectious diseases are gone. And to your other point about my dad, uh, 
always is trying to figure out where he gets cold from. I mean, this has been goes back years. Like he's got a cold. He has to try and trace it. He's like an epidemiologist. He's tracing it back to like contact he had with other. It must have been one of his grandkids or some. Like it was never just he's walking to Walmart and got it or something, right? It's always it's always got to be someplace. And I'm the same. In some ways, I'm the same way. We my wife just has a cold now, and we were out at a benefit a few days ago, um, about three or four days ago, and she has a, started developing cold now. I don't know. Maybe it's COVID. Who knows? But you immediately think, well, how did you get it? Right? Like, was it at the? I haven't had much what? contact except with our family, but. To your point, there was no one sneezing. There was no one coughing. There was no one obviously sick, but it was a room of probably a couple hundred people. It would not surprise me if a few people had a cold of some sort of respiratory disease and she just got it because it's aerosolized. And that is just the nature of infectious aerosolized, you know, upper respiratory infections. That's just kind of what they are. And it's hard for us to accept that, that you can't, somebody just nothing you can do about it except not be human. Yeah. I mean, it's a virus, not a sin. That's the, that's the key thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so how... How has your career changed? When I talked to you last last June, it had obviously changed dramatically because you made the bold step of doing something. And and I will my hats off to you because you were in a position. I mean, you're a tenured professor, some so maybe you have a little less risk than people who aren't tenured who are fighting for their for the ten, for the professorship and at the academia. But it's still a huge risk and gamble to go against what clearly is the tide back in October. Your mm. life has obviously changed. How how has your career changed? I guess you know in the last two years. I mean, since you kind of boldly stepped out and said, "Hey, I think we're maybe doing things wrong." I mean, I have to say that I, I mean, I published like I think six six or seven papers uh, on COVID in the pandemic, and and a, and a few others um, like a few others that trickled in uh, or during the pandemic that, that that were from projects that are you know because publication takes a while. So it doesn't look like from the outside that my 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 publications have slowed down, but my 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 personal zeal to work on pure pure like science scientific ideas uh that i had before i can i feel has 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 declined some i I just i've lost some faith in this in this process just seeing how corrupted science has been during the pandemic um and i don't i don't i'm not sure what i need to do with myself i mean i I do i think i have um before the pandemic i used to work on on um science policy actually i did a whole series of papers um, looking at uh, at why, uh, first measuring the extent to which biomedical scientists work on new ideas, um, and then evaluating the NIH, uh, scientific journals, and scientists on on what, on you know, sort of the reluctance they have to like actually publish and work on new ideas. Uh, just in February 2020, I, I published a paper in uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences uh, showing that the NIH actually had become much more conservative over time uh, during Francis Collins' tenure. Uh, I still want to work on that. I think that's quite important. Um, like reforming science uh, so that we go back to, like I think now what, what's happened in science is that we reward people who have a lot of influence, their ideas have a lot of influence. But that's essentially what a citation count is. It's the measure of influence. But we, we, we sort of punish people who work on crazy new ideas. Uh, it's not like the VC world. The VC world, someone works on a crazy new idea, they fail, they, they get another chance to work on another crazy idea because um, you don't know what's going to work. Um, in science, we punish people who work on new things, especially biomedical sciences. Like we, you're, 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 and you grants you get based on, uh, I mean, I've sat on, on, on NIH grant review sessions for 20 years. Uh, you get, you basically, if you're working on an idea, the, the assessment is on, oh, can this possibly work? 
but it's the assessment is made by people who have a, a vested interest in it, that idea not working because the, then, then yeah. their ideas get sort of pushed to the side. Uh, I mean, I think um, I, I want to work on that. I think there's a lot of like interesting science to do about that, about, about on that. Like, how do you measure novelty? What other aspects of sci science do you want to, 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 to reward other than just novelty uh, or, or, or influence? I mean, I, I, I would like to see a whole range of statistics on scientists, kind of like we do with baseball players, right? You have, it's not just like, you know, just like measure their their RBIs or something. You you want to measure a, a whole range of statistics. With scientists, it shouldn't just be how much influence do you have. You know, how many citations did you get? Um, it, it should be a, a whole range of things we want scientists to have uh, aspects of the of their of their how they how they work to have. And some scientists might be good at at you know criticizing other scientists, doing replication work, uh, thinking of crazy new ideas, testing out crazy new ideas. Um, all of that should be rewarded not just influence, even if even if the, the project fails. I, I think I, so in that sense, I kind of want to go back to that. That was part of my earlier career, but I was a health economist uh, before and, and there's some aspects of health policy I look at and go, well, this is just seems boring to me right now. Uh, and I don't really, um, and, and a lot of the colleagues that I've worked with, some of them acted very, very poorly uh, toward me in particular during the pandemic. Um, I'm going to work really hard to try to forgive them, but I don't know if I can go back to just being friends with them the way I want, I just, that, that just won't happen. Um, uh, so I think, uh, I think that that's the, that, that to me, it's, it's changed my perspective considerably. I mean, as a, as a health policy, you know, I, I, as a health economist, you always want to have some effect on health policy. Uh, as a, even as a French epidemiologist, I think you'd want that. Uh, in that sense, it's been very gratifying. I've had, I, I, I think I've had some effect on policy, although I think we lost the policy war in October, 2020, unfortunately, um, with, with the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, uh, but I do, I do think that, uh, that that if I can use my career to to help reform how science works, uh, so that it can become what it's supposed to be, which is this wonderful, amazing tool for discovering new new things about the material world, uh, that that where where it's a where it's a conversation between you know bright people who who who's with the, what they what their the passion they share is learning about the world. I would love to be able to do that, to, to make, help make science that kind of place again. Yeah. Well, I look forward to your sabermetrics for scientists, you know, <laughs> when you have wins against replacement. I think we can say Anthony Fauci had a lot of errors this last year. He had a rough a rough <laughs> season in the infield. <laughs> he, he muffed a lot I'm of ground balls. Bill James of, 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 of science policy. It'd be... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might want to be, you know, even if you're a guy who just gets a bunch of walks, maybe the on-base percentage is probably good enough. I don't know. Yeah, I think a lot of places you go with that. Uh, I do think just to, again, back to the, the fact that I think people are viewing, at least clinicians are viewing masks differently, and I think viewing the infectious disease process differently with COVID. I think, you know, the pendulums have swung quite a ways towards preventing discussion of ideas on in academia. And my guess is people probably who are who were not fringe suddenly became fringe and they're bothered by this. But not only just on the right, but I think, and I don't know if I'd even consider you right. I mean, you're probably right leaning, but even people like on the left, suddenly their ideas, you know, their concerns about things were largely ignored with education and for um, children and things like that. And they recognize the the risk, the danger of having this this uh, mono mono thought monoculture of of thought, and so. My guess is there'll be a broad coalition that will will try and push things back towards a more robust discussion within the academia. Because so I do think it is, I do just think it's pendulum, yeah. and then at some point, 
and I would hope that you'd be part of that. I'm sure you would be part of that discussion uh, when trying to get things back to the way they should be. So we have this, uh, I've, I've been part of this initiative uh, called the Academy of Science and Freedom that's aimed, that's actually the mission of it, is to, is to help that converse, that, 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 that the, the environment within science to, to push back in, in a place where free discussion of ideas is, is just the norm. I mean, and that doesn't mean you people won't be mad at each other or they won't argue with each other. In fact, sure. that'll be that's just normal. It's actually, frankly, it's the fun part of science. Um, actually, I, I want to talk about just briefly, just something you mentioned, which is really important. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I always consider myself sort of kind of on the center right, but I didn't know what that meant, frankly. I was like, I was a, I was a, um, you know, I'm an economist, so I kind of like markets. Does that maybe center right? And what I've learned during the pandemic is that um, those just those labels don't really mean a ton to me. Um, like the, the 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 people that that uh, that pushed back, a lot of them were on, the, on my allies are on the left, actually, uh, and I find I shared a lot of values with them. A lot of the people pushing for the lockdowns, actually, there were a lot of them on the left, a lot of them on the left. Um, and I think they acted in ways that were just not right. But also a lot of people on the right pushed for lockdowns. Um, so it, it sort of cut across ideological lines, existing ideological lines in a very strange way. Right. You had a, you had a socialist government in Sweden saying no to lockdown. <laughs> Uh, you had you had a, a conservative Republican governor in Florida saying no to lockdown. You, you have a progressive. Is that the right word for for, uh, for Governor Newsom? Um, I just call him a tyrant, frankly, because uh, because he kept my kids out of school. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Because uh, uh, but uh, he you know he's he's on he's on the left and he's pushing lockdown. I mean, so it's just it just cut in a very strange way across the ideological spectrum. Um, and I think uh, this is actually is an opportunity for right and left to, to, to get together, actually. I mean, you know, maybe I'm naive about this, but we all have a shared common interest in making science work properly. Yeah, well, and I think to the I think it's important to recognize that it's it's easy when you're when your guys are in power, it's easy to want to consolidate power to um, have more control over things. But you always have to keep back your mind, recognize that that may be a, an, an issue later, right? Like you look at Canada, for instance, with the Freedom Convoy and they had the truckers and I had one of the truckers on my show uh, who I knew through a, a friend of mine. And just talking about, you know, the people got sort of locked down in their, their banking for donating to this. And whatever you think about the Freedom Convoy, whatever. I don't really care. I love them. I got, I got right. a, I'm thinking of getting a honk thing on my, up for my wall. <laughs> but, you know, the, the point is, is that people were, people were denied access to their, their financial means and right i mean that's basically you could you could i mean in many ways just kill them because you could if you suddenly take away all their money and you could and you might say well that's the right thing because those people were supporting the wrong they're you know rebels it started like revolution etc it doesn't matter but the point is is that that's trudeau's in power well maybe 10 years from now it's someone else who's got the entirely different and now people who donated to black lives matter or some other sort of left-wing causes they would be subjected to the same sort of right i mean you have to always recognize that whatever power you grant someone could be used by the person who you like the least, right? And to not always assume it's going to be the person you like. And I think in, we have very, very short memories in politics in the United States. And I think probably not just unique to us. I think it's a human condition. And I think you just have to always remember that that is a, that is a risk. And that, and to your point, what ideas in spreading at universities, I think we need to make sure that all ideas are open because you don't know who, it shouldn't matter who's in power, who has the dominant thought. You should always have a dissident view should be there. Because sometimes they are the ones that are important to know about. They might be right, and yeah. we have to have that discussion. Well, even if it's not even there, if, where it's going to happen? 
you know, that, that like, I mean, like, let me talk just very quickly about Stanford, but uh, before you, before that, I just say like, it's not just that people that are right should be part of the discussion. Like we don't, the, the point is you don't know. So even people that right. are wrong help the discussion because now the people that are right have an opportunity to sharpen themselves. So they understand what, what, why they're right more deeply. The person that's wrong then helps the, helps the person that's right. That's, that's just like, a, a, this is a J, classic John Stuart Mill kind of argument, but that's, I mean, it's totally true. Um, and so what, we have this very strong um, imp, uh, 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 sort of bonus that comes from this kind of open discussion because we, we push our knowledge about the way the world works, what the right thing to do is, do is what's, what's morally just, what's, not, what's, what's unjust. Uh, into into a better place because we have this this uh, this this capacity to disagree with each other. Um, instead, what we've moved toward is this this idea that there's good information and misinformation, and we have a, as a society an obligation to suppress misinformation because it might mislead somebody into thinking something's wrong, something's right when it's wrong or wrong when it's right. Um, I think that's incredibly dangerous, and and it's actually even places like Stanford have, have embraced this. Right. So there have been 100 or more grand rounds, 100 and some grand rounds since the epidemic started. Uh, at, at, uh, and at Stanford, I, I've not been invited to give a single one. John Ioannidis has not been invited to give a single one. Probably the, most, the world's most uh, cited scientist, probably, and frankly, one of the most creative, a true genius, um, has not been invited to give a single grand rounds at Stanford. Um, it's, it is an absolute travesty for a, a great university to essentially to, to silence uh, a, a discussion about on, a, on such a such an important topic, uh, especially when there are people who have a, contra a contrary view and good reasons, I think, for those contrary views. Yeah, well, and I, if you've watched the video on Johnny Nice, if no one's seen him, he is not a, would you call a firebrand? He's not fire and brimstone. I mean, he is very mild mannered, and I think just a sensible guy. And I think when it comes to disagreeing, it's very important to disagree because it not only does it make your argument stronger, but I think it you can refine things and, and you may have errors in your your thinking. And I think there's no better example. I, we all do this every day. If you're married, you have to, you have to, you disagree all the time, but you do it agreeably. And if you do it properly, you're a much better person. I think you have better ways of parenting, better ways of getting through life. And I think your life's just better if you find a, a balance to, to do that. Because all the time I'm disagreeing with my wife on things and, and, but it, but it makes us better people, I think, and better ways of approaching our kids and, and life because you see things through another set of eyes and it makes you, and then you, you know, then you go out and test those theories in the world. And, and, and I think, you know, that's, that's probably what you'd like is you, you want to have someone who can bounce ideas off of, who doesn't think exactly like you, because that's, that would not make you grow as a human. Yeah, I mean, I think we all. I mean, Eric. I mean, you, you and I. I think we we agree on a lot. But we, I'm sure in in conversation, I'd I'd like find something you disagree. And frankly, that's a great opportunity. It's an opportunity for me to learn from you, or or uh, and um uh and it's 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 what makes science fun is that open disagreement where we're not we're not vilifying each other. We're just learning from each other. And I changed when I've changed my mind about things in in science. Have been some of the best moments for me. My students teach me something, right? So they, they, they do a dissertation where the result didn't come out the way I thought it was going to come out. And I go, wow, this is right. Uh, and I changed my mind. I mean, I think those are, those are really nice moments as scientists. Um, and I think uh, having this like sort of uh, uh, replacing science with this propaganda engine is just a, was, it's just a huge, huge mistake. 
Uh, we have to fix that. Yeah, I think we need to we need to have some humility both on for voters and people who um, to that their government officials, the public officials might be wrong, and that's okay. They make mistakes, but because they sh there should be some openness. Like if they got something wrong, they admit it and said, "Hey, you know what? That mass mandate didn't work. It was a it clearly was not useful, and now we know, and so we're not going to do that again." Uh, or we really did need to just close on schools, whatever it might be, and that, that you have a back and forth within the public. I mean, the problem, of course, is that the political stakes, policy in government officials, people who are elected, I think it's that's a tough place to do that because the stakes are so much higher for being right or wrong, getting elected, losing your job, you know, losing the election. So that's why you need to have it in academia, in the, you know, other places and not try and, try and have the governor, you know, go back because it, they're they're less likely to admit that they're wrong. They might just, right, because they, they'll walk it back some other way. But, you know, I mean, that's human nature, too, I, to some respect. Well, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford University, thank you so much for being on The Paradox. I enjoyed our conversation. Uh, hopefully, n next time we talk, <laughs> there won't be a pandemic anymore <laughs> some way, but, or at least there won't be a new one, and, and maybe we'll rely, return to some more sensible medicine. And I'd love to have chat about your foundation, hopefully your organization, really starts to make some inroads in getting better discussion in academia. We, maybe, maybe one, uh, at some point we can have a conversation about sabermetrics. That would be, that'd be a lot of fun, Eric. You would come up with sabermetrics for scientists. You are on and it's like, we're going to, I'll promote the heck out of that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Thanks a lot. All right, you take care. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.